couple months ago, I was dealing with a mechanical issue around our house, and I just, I couldn't make my way through it, and I needed some help. So I went to that always wise and helpful resource we know as YouTube. One of the, the greatest things that's happened in recent culture is YouTube, the ability to solve any problem you need to solve in a YouTube video. I don't know who these folks are, but they have a lot of time on their hands to film themselves doing these types of things. And there's no judgment there. There is nothing but great appreciation because it helped me make my way through that issue. But before I got that solved, I have to tell you, I watched way too many videos. I would go from this video to this video to this video as I was just trying to find the answer. And some of you know, I don't have the greatest of eyesight. So I had to put my glasses up on the top of my head, had, and I went to my phone instead of the, the tablet or the computer. I had my phone, so I had it way too close to my face, and I'm watching all of these videos until finally I felt like I had the solution I needed, and I put my phone down, and my eyes were literally blurry blurry from watching YouTube videos. You ever had your eyes blurry from watching YouTube videos? Same kind of thing can happen if you're watching TV, if you're laying on the couch and you've watched a whole lot longer than you realized you had watched. You get up and you have to wonder if your legs are even going to work. You ever watch so much TV you've wondered if your legs are going to work when it's over? Apparently nobody's had either one of these problems. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm going to be going to celebrate recovery for issues I didn't even know I had until right now, so thanks for that, but that's Thursday night, so I'll be there and see if I can work my way through blurry eyes and non-functioning legs from those types of things. Well, this past week, I was doing something along those same lines as I was studying for this message. I had spent way too much time in the realm of philosophy. And by the time I was finished with it, I had called Deanie in and Matt in. We'd batted some different things around. I felt like my eyes were blurry from the amount of study that I had done in philosophy. It was too much, and I should have got out of it long before I did. But every once in a while, I like diving into that realm. Now, maybe you're not sure what philosophy is. The University of Florida has a pretty good definition of it. Here it is. Quite literally, the term philosophy means love of wisdom. In a broad sense, philosophy is an activity people undertake when they seek to understand fundamental truths about themselves, the world in which they live, and their relationships to the world and to each other. As an academic discipline, philosophy is much the same. Those who study philosophy are perpetually engaged in asking, answering, and arguing for their answers to life's most basic questions. And I really do enjoy getting into that realm from time to time because it stretches my thinking. Now, one area that, that I don't find myself stretched in because it was solidified for me a long, long time ago is the metaphysical realm. Here it is up on the screen, the metaphysical realm, or simply the definition of metaphysics, the study of reality. It's in the metaphysical realm that philosophy spends a lot of its time. And by doing that, they are challenging the people that are studying in that realm to determine what they believe about God, what they believe about themselves, what they would consider truth and declare as truth. All of that happens in metaphysics, and that is a part of the philosophical world, and that's what a lot of the writing is about. It's what a lot of the teaching is about. That's what a lot of the speakers in the realm of philosophy deal with. Metaphysics, getting a person to a place where they can declare their reality, 
what they accept as truth. Now, there are some different tools that philosophers use for that. They use knowledge to try to help people arrive at those conclusions. They use logic and ethics. They put all three of those things together to help shape a metaphysical point of view. For me, like I said, that was solidified a long time ago because here's what I believe in the metaphysical realm. I believe in God. I believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that all three are one. I believe in the authority, the unquestioned authority of the Word of God. I believe that Jesus came and lived on this earth, that he died after 33 years willingly on a cross. I believe that he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he rose from that grave. I believe that he spent 40 days on this earth where he appeared to a number of people, and at the end of those 40 days he ascended into heaven, and I believe that he is coming back just as he left, and that is all unquestioned for me. If you find yourself able to say those same things about who God is, would you give a resounding amen or a round of applause to the Lord? (laughs) Metaphysically, when we arrive at that place, truth is set for us. And I think sometimes it's the challenge of those things that is somewhat intriguing to me. And as a result of that, that's probably why I love the 17th chapter of Acts the way I do. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, why don't you open up to Acts 17 with me? Paul is going to speak in the philosophical realm in this chapter. He's going to deal with metaphysics, and you'll see it. He's going to challenge people to determine what they believe about God, what they believe about themselves, and eventually he will lead them to what they must believe about Jesus. And in order to do that, he does the most interesting thing. He takes them through the empty tomb, through the resurrection. Now, he is speaking to Greek people, people that love philosophy. That's his audience. He knows it, and he approaches them with an almost surgical-like expertise. Listen to this. Verse 22 of the 17th chapter. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, we also know that as Mars Hill, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's the truth of who God is. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, in that particular realm. He's moving from who God is into who we are, who God created us to be. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, as he is making us face who we are and telling us that we need to repent because there is a time appointed by God where all mankind will face judgment, he says, in that judgment, you can be measured not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of the one whom God appointed, and that was Jesus. So now, in this philosophical debate, he's caught all of the realms of the metaphysical, who God is, who man is, and who Jesus is. And he's reminded us as men and women that we need Jesus in order to know God. It's a beautiful sermon. It is a beautiful sermon. It is so pointed, particularly the last two verses of it. Listen again. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He ends with the resurrection. He ends with the resurrection. In the philosophical realm, in the metaphysical realm, he ends with the resurrection. Don't miss that, because the resurrection puts a period at the end of everything. We need God, and the only way to have relationship with Him is through His Son, and God made it possible by appointing His Son to die on a cross, but not to stop there, to rise from the grave, and Jesus did. That's what Easter is all about. It's about the resurrection that ties everything together and gives us hope because left on our own, there is none. Left on our own, there is none. That day of judgment that is coming, if we are to be judged by our actions, our words, our thoughts, we will fall short. But if we are judged by Jesus, there is great hope. There is great hope. And the resurrection shows it to us. The empty tomb shows it to us. That's the answer we all need. That's what sets Jesus apart from anybody else that would claim to be a God. And that's what gives us the promise of eternal life. Metaphysically, it's the resurrection. Metaphysically, it is the resurrection that changes everything. I don't know if you've ever studied the resurrection in Scripture or the idea of resurrection. To study the idea of it means that you're going to have to go deeper than the resurrection account that we are most familiar with, which, of course, is Jesus himself. You can study the whole concept of resurrection and find yourself in some intriguing places because Jesus is not the only one that rose from the grave. Let that soak in for just a second. Jesus is not the only one that rose from the grave. There are at least 10 other accounts of people that were resurrected. Here they are. Take a look. There's the widow of Zarephath's son. That resurrection account happened through the prayers and the the work and the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Then there's the Shunammite woman's son. 
That resurrection happened through the prayer and the ministry and the work of the prophet Elisha. There is a difference. Then there's the man raised out of Elisha's grave. This is one of my personal favorite. doesn't have to be yours. Just one of my personal favorite accounts. Let me show it to you. It doesn't take very long, but this good stuff. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20. Take a look at this. If you have your Bibles open, if not, just listen and let your imagination run wild. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. <laughs> That's a great story. That is a great account. Now, when my imagination runs wild, here's what it looks like. Elisha's died. He's been placed in his grave. Here come these band of marauders. One of them dies. They grab his body. There's a grave close by, so they open up the the grave by rolling the stone back. They throw his body in there where Elisha had just recently been laid. When they throw his body in there, his body rolls a little bit and touches the bones of Elisha. And the minute that they touch the bones of Elisha, that man comes back to life. Now, here's where it takes a fun turn, at least in my head, maybe not in yours, because I have to wonder, what did he say when he came out? And I think it sounded kind of like this. This is, again, just in my head. It's not in the Bible, and it doesn't have to be in yours. I think he walked out of that tomb and just went, hey. (laughs) The moment he did that, can't you imagine how freaked out all the other marauders were? You were dead. You were dead. We threw you in there. You rolled over. You touched those bones. Hey, that's all you. We'll stop there. Moving on. There's the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus of Bethany. All of those happened at the hand of Jesus. And then there's the various saints in Jerusalem. As much as the account we just read from 2 Kings is one of my favorite accounts of resurrection aside from Jesus, this is one of the most mysterious. Those that came out of those tombs, wow. Scholars and theologians have battled over this for a long time. A lot of preachers have entered that battle and that discussion, and others just choose to skip over this because it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Found in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow. Wow. When Jesus rose from the grave, other graves were opened. When Jesus rose from the grave, the graves of many holy people were opened. And they came out and they walked around. They were recognizable even though they had died, some of them, hundreds of years before this. People knew who they were. I can't imagine, even in the craziness of my imagination, I can't imagine those conversations, what that was like. I can't imagine what it was like to say to some of those folks, hey, you want to come over for dinner? And sit down and visit with them, just to hear about what they had experienced, what they had seen, what it was like when those graves opened. That's why it's so mysterious. Now, there are other accounts as well. 
like this one in. At number eight, Tabitha is found in the book of Acts. Eutychus found in the book of Acts. But, but far and away, the most popular, the most familiar, and the one that has the greatest impact, in fact, without this one, none of the others matter, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here today. It does the most amazing, remarkable, miraculous thing for all mankind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives hope to the hopeless. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives truth to people that are seeking it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ties together every other aspect of society, of history, of philosophy, of everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is everything. And without the resurrection of Jesus, we are all lost. We are all lost. Every one of us. I want you to follow how deep that is because the resurrection of Jesus not only gives us the promise of eternal life, but it does something else that's quite remarkable. It brings, here's the biblical term for it, it brings justification into our lives and world. Justification. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I haven't been around the church for that long preacher, I'm not sure I know what that means. Well, the simple definition of justification, it really is easy to understand. Justification moves us from the realm of sin, where that is the only thing that measures our life and our death and our eternity, into right standing with God. That's what justification does for us. It moves us from sin into right standing with God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 4. We'll start in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now Paul is talking about Abraham, the Abraham of the Old Testament. He knows his audience, so he knows how to start this out. So this whole idea of justification, he started with Abraham, but watch the subtle progression. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, here's that big word, justification. So that we could move from sin into right standing with God. So that our life could be changed here and now. Here and now. We get to move from sin, condemnation, into right standing with God, the hope of glory, and a new life a brand new life starting now. Man, that's good news. That is good news. I really like the way Oswald Chambers, a lot of people have studied Oswald Chambers through the years using his popular devotion book called My Utmost for His Highest. So a lot of folks, even as they have just gotten started in their walk with the Lord, are familiar with Oswald well, I like the way he explores the idea of justification. I particularly like the fact that he starts in Scripture. So listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that's right out of Scripture. The Apostle Paul wrote that. But listen to how Oswald Chambers brings it to light. I am not saved by believing. I simply realize I am saved by believing. And it is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is only the sign that I realize what God has done through Christ Jesus. The danger here is putting the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. Is it my obedience, consecration, and dedication that make me right with God? It is never that. I am made right with God because prior to all of that, Christ died. When I turn to God and by belief accept what God reveals, the miraculous atonement by the cross of Christ instantly places me into a right relationship with God. And as a result of the supernatural miracle of God's grace, I stand justified. Not because I am sorry for my sin or because I have repented, but because of what Jesus has done. The Spirit of God brings justification with a shattering, radiant light, and I know that I am saved. The salvation that comes from God is not based on human logic, but on the sacrificial death of Jesus. We can be born again solely because of the atonement of our Lord. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creations, not through their repentance or their belief, but through the wonderful work of God in Christ Jesus, which preceded all of our experience. The unconquerable safety of justification and sanctification is God himself. The supernatural becomes natural to us through the miracle of God and the realization of what Jesus Christ has already done. That's why he said it is finished. That's justification. It all hinges on Jesus, every part of it. But in the metaphysical realm, in the philosophical realm, the responsibility that rests on us is to determine what we believe about him. And when we follow him all the way through the empty tomb, it's at that moment that we get to determine it. Do we believe that he rose from the grave or not? That's it. That is the simple question that sits in front of everyone. What do you believe about Jesus? Because to not believe in him leaves you stuck in hopelessness. To believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave changes everything, puts you in right standing with God. Everything else that follows is the effect. The cause is Jesus in the empty tomb. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, Alistair Begg, another really good preacher and theologian, takes that a little bit deeper by looking at the Apostle Paul's life and saying, let's just pay attention to Paul. If we're still struggling to understand this, let's pay attention to Paul. I like how he does it. Outside of the resurrection itself, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is perhaps the strongest apologetic for the Christian gospel. While his story is unique, there are elements that are true of every genuine conversion. First, he had an entirely new view of Jesus. 
Instead of rejecting his claims, Saul declared him Lord. Secondly, his view of the followers of Jesus was radically changed. Instead of hounding them to death, he joined them in worship. And thirdly, he no longer took pride in his position and achievements because he now understood God's mercy, so much so that he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. We might say that Saul's world was turned upside down, which means that it was turned the right way up. These elements will be part of the story of everyone who is truly converted. In the words of Newton, they declare, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. When the Easter story takes hold of our lives, we realize that Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we cannot pay. We're able to say that because he lives, we shall live also. That's justification. That's the way it works. It is all because of Jesus. It is all because of Jesus. Here, say it with me. It is all because of Jesus. Everything else is the effect. Jesus is the cause. How we respond to him determines everything. It determines everything about eternity and our life from this moment forward. Now, as much as I like what Oswald Chambers had to say and what Alistair Bagg had to say, and, and I really do because both of those guys have taught me a lot through the years, I think there's some merit to us just looking at what Jesus had to say. And that's where Alistair Bagg ended in that quote that we just put up there. He ended in John chapter 14. Why don't you take a look with me? John chapter 14, verse 19. If you're looking at a red letter edition of the Bible, these words are in red. That means Jesus said it. So listen close. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And right there, the Lord was showing us something different. He was showing us resurrection before it ever happened, Jesus was showing us resurrection. Yet because I live, you also will live. That's the greatest teaching we can find on this. It comes right from the Lord. Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. He is the cause it all hinges on him. Every bit of it hinges on him. When we understand that, the resurrection does something pretty incredible for us. It changes our vision. And here's what I mean by that. It has well been said that oftentimes we believe that God misses the mark because we are too nearsighted to see what he is doing. Now let me say that again. Often we believe that God misses the mark because we are too nearsighted to see what he is doing. Now, at its heart, what that quote really means is this. When we're in the middle of a circumstance or a situation that we don't want to be in, we begin to pray very nearsightedly about our circumstance and our situation. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible tells us to do that. 
We know that we are to bring before the Lord everything. So it is okay to pray that way. But as long as we remain nearsighted, narcissistic, looking at our very close situation, we are never able to look down the trail to see what God is doing. We never lift our head and clear our eyes so that we can look ahead to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. It's always been that way. So the Lord finds ways to help lift our head and clear our vision. Again, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to pay attention to the Bible. We're going to go to the Gospel of John again, chapter 11. Not only do I want you to believe the Bible, I want you to follow the steps of a wonderful lady named Martha. She has a lot to teach us. Now, here's her nearsighted situation. Her brother got sick. His name is Lazarus. They sent word to Jesus, who was a very good friend of Lazarus and of Martha and her sister Mary. He had eaten at their home many times. He had stayed with them when he would come into the region of Bethany. He knew them well. So they got word to Jesus, Lazarus, the one whom you love, your buddy, he's sick. At that particular point in time, Martha and Mary believed, as well they should have, that if Jesus got there, he could turn the whole thing around. He could heal their brother. And they were right. They were right. But Jesus stayed where he was at until Lazarus died. And then he went to Bethany. Then he got there. Martha was a little bit upset with him. Understandably, she was a little bit upset with him. You've probably been a little bit upset with the Lord at some point in your life. If you haven't been, you will be at some point. But I want you to see the conversation that follows. Verse 25 of John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus had just talked to her about resurrection, and she said, I know that, that he'll live again at the resurrection, but I'm upset right now about what's going on. If you'd have been here, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus just calmed her down and said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I love her response. Yes, Lord, I do. I believe you are the Christ. I believe. And then Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And he gave us this idea of what resurrection would look like. He gave it first to Mary and Martha and the disciples, but he gave it to us as well. He cleared up our vision so that we could understand in the smallest of ways what resurrection would look like. It was setting the stage for what he would do when he came out of the grave so that we could have our vision cleared, so that we could have our heads lifted and no longer just look at whatever situation or circumstance we are in, but to recognize that because of the resurrection, no matter what happens, God is still God, and Jesus still came out of the grave. So it's okay. Our nearsightedness gets cleared up through resurrection. It's so cool that it does. I'll show you exactly what that looks like. Let's stay in the Gospel of John, but go to the 20th chapter. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark 
and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. To see the empty tomb is to believe clears up our vision to get to the place where we see that Jesus is no longer in it clears up our vision that's why when we look at a cross it is imperative to see an empty cross Jesus is no longer on the cross he's no longer in the tomb that's what changes everything for us and it clears up our vision it lifts our head to see further down the trail This is what God is doing. Earlier in John chapter 11, Jesus would say to the disciples, because like Mary and Martha, they didn't understand why Jesus just didn't go to his sick friend. He said, for your sake, I'm glad that I didn't, so that you can believe. I'm glad I wasn't there. For our sake, Jesus would say the same thing. I'm glad I wasn't in that tomb, so you can believe. Changes everything. Clears up everything. And leaves us with that metaphysical answer or question. What do you believe? What do you believe? And if you can get to the place that you can say, I believe that Jesus came to this earth, that he lived for 33 years, that he willingly died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and three days later he came out of it. If you can get to the place that you can say that, you stand justified before the Lord. Everything that follows becomes the effect of the justification. Follow closely with what the Bible teaches. Follow closely and walk with the Lord. Oh my, walk with the Lord. You want to. Trust me, you want to. I want to leave you with one other really curious thing that the resurrection did. It is uniquely curious. It's almost philosophical in nature. And what I mean by that is it begins with with a question. I'll show it to you in just a second. Join me in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now that's the Apostle Paul writing those words. Now, here's my question. How many people did Jesus appear to in the 40 days after the resurrection before he ascended into heaven? 
We know that he appeared to Peter and to the other apostles. We know that he appeared to some of the women. We know that he appeared to a couple of people on the road to Emmaus. We know all of that. But now Paul tells us something kind of staggering. He appeared to 500 plus people. But who were they? And why were there only 500? Why didn't Jesus go and get on the internet, make a YouTube? Oh, I think now we understand why. Why didn't he go to the temple, stand on the southern steps, and show himself to everyone? Why not? Conservatively, we might be able to say that Jesus appeared because the Bible says 500 plus people. He appeared to 550 people. That sounds like a big number, but really it isn't. That's a small number of people. Why only 550 people? Why? Philosophically, we can bat that around all day long, and we can come to all kinds of different conclusions, most of them opinion-based. Well, I think this is why he did it, or I think this is why he did it, or I think this is why he did it. There is a point where we have to go back into the authority of Scripture to find the answer, and the Bible tells us. The Bible lets us know exactly why. Join me in the book of Acts. We're almost done. Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 34, and we're going to go through verse 43. So if you're dyslexic, this is a gift for you. We're going to start in 34, and we're going to end in 43. Wow. Folks, that's the best it's going to get. I got, no, I got nothing else. That's, that's it. Here we go. Verse 34. Shoot, Dini, I may have to repent of that. I'm not sure. Okay, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the world that he sent to Israel, the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Now, everything that we just went through deals again philosophically in the metaphysical realm. But listen to this, verse 41. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's the answer. Jesus only appeared to 500 because God had a plan. His plan was his church. His plan was that the believers, those that saw him after the resurrection, and I love this tiny little detail that ate and drank with him, would tell people about what they had experienced, that they would hold high the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would hold high the resurrected Lord. And as a result of them doing that, God would do what he does, and he would respond in justification. By opening their eyes. God's plan. Listen, God's plan. Pay really close attention. 
God's plan was that those that have eaten and drank with the resurrected Christ would tell people what that means. My friends, if you have taken the Lord's Supper, if you have participated in communion, you have done that post-resurrection. You have done that post-resurrection, which means it's your job and it's God's plan that you will hold high the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will tell people about what he means to you. You have been justified because of him. You have been placed in right standing with God because of him. You have moved from sin into justification because of Jesus. Not because of yourself, because of Jesus. Hold that high and you tell people about it because that was God's plan. That was God's plan. And it worked. 500 people saw the resurrected Christ and billions of people in the last 2,000 years have come to know him as their Lord and Savior. God's plan works. Be part of it. Be part of it. You've been justified by Jesus. Tell people what he did for you. Tell people about the resurrection. And you might say, preacher, that sounds great, but I'm not a preacher. That sounds great, but I'm not eloquent in words. That sounds great, but I don't think I could pull it off. Live the resurrection and let God do the rest. Because you need to read on in Acts 10 and see what God does. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. While he was still speaking, he hadn't even finished. And God poured out the Holy Spirit on them. You just be faithful with what God has given you, which is the resurrection. You hold that high in your life and in your speech. And you tell the people that you love and care about what Jesus has done for you. And God will do the rest. If you fall short, God will pick it up and go. If you mess it up, God will pick it up and go. The Holy Spirit is there. Let him do what he does, but you do what you're called to do because you stand justified before God because of Jesus. So you let him do the rest. Resurrection continues to grow the kingdom. The resurrected Christ continues to bring about new believers. All because Jesus would say in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And once you have eaten and you have drank with the resurrected Christ, go tell other people so that when Jesus knocks on the door, they recognize his voice. When he knocks on the door, they want to open it because you've already gone ahead and the Holy Spirit's gone with you pretty cool the way it works that's God's plan for resurrection be part of that plan if you don't understand the justification side of it and you have yet to find yourself in right standing with God start there but then after that point you move on into God's plan the Holy Spirit do the rest